GI Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast covering upper GI highlights from ESMO. I'm Sam Klempner. I'm a GI medical oncologist at Mass General in Boston, and I'm joined by a good friend, Dr. Yelena Janjigian. Yelena, you want to introduce yourself quickly? Yes, uh, thanks uh, for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure to discuss updates from ESMO 2022. It's a great Congress in Paris. We're all back, we're living the meeting, and so it's a perfect time to discuss what we've learned. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we're going to hit the highlights. We'll talk a little bit about some frontline data and then move into the second line space. You know, I think this whole world of gastroesophageal cancers continues to evolve, which is a, a good thing for our patients. So I'm going to start off by asking you about some data that you presented, which leads into a, maybe some bigger questions about how to move beyond um, your Checkmate 649 data. So you had a, a nice poster from a fellow looking at the combination of uh, full Fox and PD-1 and building upon that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. So uh, one of my junior colleagues, Dr. Sutron, presented exciting you know, uh, opportunity for a junior to showcase your junior faculty and fellows. But this is a follow-up to Checkmate 649, right? We know that uh, most of our patients in first-line setting derives a degree of benefit from immune checkpoint blockade but given the fact that our tumors are chromosomally unstable and quite complicated, the tumor microenvironment needs a little bit of a boost. And so that's the rationale behind many of the combination studies that are ongoing now. Our phase two Fulfox regorafenib nivolumab is one of them. This is building on the work showing the tumor targeting with trastuzumab, for example, and uh, anti-PD-1 therapy combination may help augment the anti-tumor immune response. So we looked at first-line patients, irrespective of pdl one status, and assessed progression-free survival and uh, overall response rate and other uh, markers of clinical benefit in first-line setting. What's uh, probably one of the more striking findings about the study is that the rate of pdl one positivity in first-line setting was substantially lower than what we saw in Checkmate 649 using 28 antibody. Some of it is likely our patient selection because people were probably directing a patient to a study if they were pdl one negative, but also it's uh, the difference in pdl one testing among the studies. We found that the study met its primary endpoint, the progression-free survival benchmark that we were hoping to achieve, we did. Um, so this is, uh, again, confirmatory data to consider combination strategies in first-line setting. Yeah, I think, you know, trying to address the potential immunomodulation of anti-angiogenic therapy is definitely a, a strategy that has some legs in, in this disease. It's similar to this trial. I know you've also been involved in some of the lenbatinib studies, and we've certainly seen some, you know, mixed frontline, later line Len-Pembro data in the past. But we did see a little bit of an update and some clues into how this phase three regimen is going to be tolerated. I don't know if you want to give us a little highlights of sort of the lead-in from this trial. Yeah, so LEAP15 is a large phase three study that's currently ongoing globally. I, I would say in the United States, uh, since Checkmate 649, 
made immunotherapy available for all. The accrual in the United States was a bit difficult because the comparator arm did not have immunotherapy, right? So that'll, you know, will make the data interpretation a bit harder once the data is available. But globally, the study had no problem accruing. And in the United States, we also put a few patients on, mostly pdl one low uh, tumors. And essentially, it's the same question, right? Will lenvatinib help move the bar above what we have accomplished with Checkmate 649? We know Keynote 62 data with prembolizumab in first-line setting initially was uh, disappointing. We do think prembolizumab and trastuzumab are very similar drugs, so that should not be a factor. Uh, but whether or not, you know, I mean, the preliminary data presented at ESMO suggests that the combination was doable, it's tolerable. Grade three, four adverse events rate was, you know, as you would expect, and it's manageable. So let's see if it's better. It's too soon to say, but certainly preliminary data suggests that it, as you said, may have some potential in subset of population. Do you think just since we have you here and you sit at a position of uh, sort of seeing the 10,000 foot view over the the landscape, do you think that the patients that are going to be enrolled in these novel combination strategies are going to be sort of pre-selected for the PDL one low population since we sort of have a, a standard or do you have no concerns about enrolling a PDL one, say CPS high patient onto a combination since they're getting IO potentially in both arms? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for the studies that have IO in both arms, then the question is, what's the risk to the patient and adverse event profile, right? And I can tell you the answer is always try to put a patient on the clinical trial. But if a trial, for example, like LEAP15 did not have an IO in um, comparator arm, our patients are quite informed and knowledgeable. And, you know, as an oncologist, I wouldn't necessarily risk uh, randomization to non-IO arm, particularly in patients with pdl one 5 or higher tumor. I think it's a bit of a stretch, especially in the United States, where our patients don't like to be randomized to begin with. Yeah. I actually was very excited uh, to see your updates so from the distinguished trial. You know, we need better biomarkers to augment the anti-tumor response. What is your experience with the drug um, and the dr- development of this agent? Yeah, so as you said, it's it's really all about biomarkers. And I think there's a lot we still need to learn about these patients. But one strategy has certainly been trying to modulate the microenvironment towards a perhaps more favorable mix. You know, we know that a portion of these patients are enriched for myeloid-derived suppressor cells and T-regulatory cells, and maybe sort of reversing that immune contexture might allow for better response to checkpoint inhibition. And that's sort of the broad theory behind targeting DKK1, which is potentially a, a novel biomarker. Essentially, patients with high DKK1 tumors seem to be enriched for some of these immunosuppressive features and associated with a worse prognosis. So there seems to be a identifying a biologic subset and some resistance to 5-FU. So in the past, targeting this strategy had been done in the later line setting in combination with pembrolizumab, where looking back on the patients, the responders were heavily enriched for DKK1 high tumors. So it begged the question of, could we develop a biomarker enriched strategy to potentially improve upon the outcomes? But initially this required some development in the frontline. And so the distinguished trial is actually a, now a three-part study, but originally a two-part study with a frontline and a, a later line cohorts. The frontline is what was presented at ESMO. And this is a combination of uh, 5-FU platinum, in this case, KPOX, and a PD-1 agent tistilizumab in combination with DKN01. 
with the main goal of trying to, as you said, improve upon uh, what we get for 502 Platinum and PD-1 alone. And essentially out of the enrolled patients, one thing, a couple of high level highlights, you know, the biomarker prevalence seems to be somewhere in the 40 to 50% range. So if this holds, it's, it may be relevant for a pretty large portion of our patients. And then encouragingly in the biomarkers enriched group, the DKK1 high patients, the response rate was quite high at 90% in, in that subset. So we're encouraged by this, but it's relatively small numbers and non-randomized data. So what's happening now, and we hope to see in the future is that there's a randomized phase two, which compares 5-FU platinum and tisalizumab versus 5-FU platinum tisalizumab and DKN01. And this is exactly what you were saying. So I, I feel comfortable enrolling essentially all comers onto this trial because both arms are getting the IO, but I agree in, in non-IO containing control arms, it becomes a little bit of a discussion with these very informed patients, but certainly an encouraging signal. What about dual anti-PD-1 CTLA-4 blockade? You know, it's uh, the more drugs you add, obviously there's more toxicity. We've considered using, uh, you know, a stepwise approach, right? Sequencing the drugs, uh, which is also an interesting question to answer. We saw data from the Moonlight study. What do you, what is your take on it? Yeah, I think, you know, I know you've been involved in some of the later line Ipinevo Checkmate 32 data in the past. So we sort of knew what the safety and potential early efficacy markers were from this combination. And of course, it was an arm in, in 649 as well. But the question remained is, as you mentioned, if you could do this sequentially and potentially leverage the benefit of remodeling with chemotherapy and then come in with the dual checkpoint blockade versus in a totally upfront combination way. And it's a little bit of an unfortunate result, but this was a well-conducted study from the German group in a two-to-one randomization of 5-FU Nevo-Ipi all concurrently versus 5-FU followed by Ipi-Nevo and then Nevo with Ipi spaced out farther as sort of per the standard. And really what they show is that their PFS at six months was really not substantially um, improved. Perhaps there was some activity, you know, response rate was there and a little bit higher in the combination arm. But I think this is a tough strategy to take forward after this data and Perhaps there's some subsets in there, you know, as they tried to tease apart the, the PDL one expressing patients, maybe there are some people who would do better with the dual checkpoint blockade, but it's hard to envision either of these arms going forward in, in large studies. I'm, I don't know what your opinion of an upfront Folfox Ipinevo triplet is, but I think that there maybe are some uh, other combinations that will rise to above that. Agreed. And particularly, it was a disappointing result for certain because, you know, my inclination and interpretation of Checkmate 649 data, and, and as you mentioned, Checkmate 32 data before, is that in IPI responders, patients who respond to IPI, the res duration of response is quite uh, dramatic. And so it is a, a worthy endeavor, but given the Moonlight data and the toxicity profile and the fact that now there's newer, better CTLA-4 inhibitors that are FC-modified, with less and more favorable adverse event profile, I think we're moving on from Nevo Ipi to the next sort of phase of our uh, drug development. And everyone's super excited about tumor targeting and immune checkpoint blockade. Uh, but I think there is still a role for immune checkpoint blockade combinations with newer inhibitors. So we'll, uh, we'll stay tuned for the next wave of the data to read out.
What about yeah. porphyry-based combination? What are your thoughts about that? You know, that was another study. Uh, certainly, you know, a little uh, disappointing, but curious to see what you think. Yeah, I mean, as you well know, not everywhere around the world has equal access to frontline checkpoint inhibitors and the um, approvals in the EMA are, are slightly different than some of the other approvals um, globally. So there is still a portion of patients who won't get checkpoint in the frontline. So the French investigator group, which has always done very good work, essentially we're trying to ask a question of in the second line setting where Maybe they use a little more uh, frontline triplet with flop, et cetera. So there's a little bit more fulfiri, and the French have always been believers in fulfiri. And actually, we've, we've used fulfiri periodically in the second line as well. Uh, but they were essentially asking the question of uh, fulfiri plus dervalumab versus and fulfiri plus uh, derva and tremi. So they're asking a question about second line population and combining First, is it safe to do full theory and checkpoint inhibitor? There's not as much data there, so it's good to have data. And second, do we see a signal? So they were asking both of these arms whether or not they would improve the PFS at four months beyond what a sort of their, their target range was 70% PFS at four months. What they did show is that actually neither arm achieved the primary goal, but they did see some little bit hard to interpret in sort of these data sets, but there were definitely some tails on these curves. There was an overall PFS that was at least comparable to what we've seen in second line, and there were some durable responses, but the regimen, as you suggested with the CTLA-4 and, and checkpoint is not without toxicity. And there was, you know, almost a 50% rate of grade three or higher adverse events. So this is in a second line setting where we're not talking about curative intent, I think all of these things need to be weighed against the toxicity and what we may achieve with standard. But I do think there's still a role to asking questions about the later line use of checkpoint inhibitors. You know, with the increasing frontline use, are there ways and strategies to consider continuing these agents potentially beyond progression and and salvaging with additional regimens or other checkpoint inhibitors or molecularly informed strategy. So it's good data to have. It's unfortunate that we didn't see more encouraging results, but I, I do think that, you know, the French deserve congratulations. Well, you know, I think as you alluded to, to me, it is still useful data. We knew that beating Taxol Ram is not going to be easy, but I would say the toxicity profile is surprisingly, you know, it's, it's not so bad. So in certainly, again, second line setting is tougher, but what it gives me is some assurance we have sometimes patients who are not platinum candidates in first line setting right and so if you were to try to use immunotherapy in first line and that you couldn't use fulfox perhaps extrapolating from those data you could be reassured to use it because we know fulfox and fulfiri are equivalent in some studies that we looked at uh, from the french group so there may be some utility for the study even if it's not practice changing um, it's good to have in your sort of a slide deck to review with the fellows uh, as they come through your clinic. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we've had a few patients, as I'm sure you have, with, you know, essentially anaphylactic oxaliplatin reactions every once in a while, where you really, even with all the descents in the ICU, you just can't go back and use the drug. So this is definitely 
something that's nice to have in your back pocket to know that there's some safety data there. Exactly. Or patients who are flop failures, for example, um, yeah. and recurred within six months, and you just don't want to use a platinum, but they have not had immunotherapy yet. So this is a cohort of patients that you may consider irinotecan-based first-line therapy. And here now you have PD-1 as at least reassuring data that you're not going to be hurting those patients. Because the concern is obviously for overlapping liver toxicity and so forth. Totally agree. And, you know, the, the question of toxicity is something that brings us to one of the other data presentations from ESMO, which was an update, you know, group of patients that I know is dear to your heart, which is the HER2 positive population. So we saw an update from Destiny Gastrico 2. Maybe you can give us sort of high level of the study population and sort of the high level. Sure. You know me, I can talk about HER2 the rest of the day, but this is obviously an important patient population, right? We knew for over a decade that HER2 is an important target, but in second line setting, many of the studies have failed. And the reason why is because it's a relatively heterogeneous disease and it becomes more heterogeneous as the cancer progresses. So using antibody drug conjugate at trastuzumab direct stecan, it was really a successful strategy came uh, in Destiny Gastric 01, which was the randomized phase two study looking at TDXD against investigator choice, third line therapy, right? This was already what led to the FDA approval of trastuzumab direct stecan, even in the United States, but in other countries in Japan. So in the United States, it's approved in uh, after trastuzumab failure. So technically in second line or beyond and in Japan in third line. So that's why it was critical to have a Western experience with trastuzumab direct stecan, and that's where Destiny Gastric 02 comes in. It's a single arm study, very much selected patient population where uh, biopsies at the time of progression on trastuzumab were mandated. And this is actually is in the FDA package sort of recommendation that if you can, please biopsy your patients at trastuzumab progression. And what, at ESMO, we saw updates from that data set. So basically, the confirmed overall response rate is very similar to what was initially presented and, and published. Disease control rate was uh, very favorable to what you would expect with uh, similar uh, HER2-negative strategies, right, with uh, paclitaxel and And the adverse event profile is what we see associated. I think often we forget that this is chemotherapy, right? We're used to perhaps uh, thinking of it as a targeted agent that is not maybe as toxic, but it's definitely chemotherapy. It has one to eight drug to antibody ratio, so higher than many of the other ABCs. And you see uh, bone marrow suppression, which in U.S. patients, we actually see a little less than Japanese patients because in the U.S. it's mostly a second line study. But you see nausea and vomiting and, and liver dysfunction sometimes. But one of the side effects that everyone's very concerned about, particularly in you know second line setting, is interstitial lung disease. We don't see a particularly high rate of ILD, not as high as you see perhaps in lung or breast cancer, but it is a real risk and you have to monitor your patients carefully. And so it was nice to see the Western experience updated by one of my colleagues, Dr. Ku, who presented this data. And again, we use this drug in the clinic standard practice now. We do biopsy at the time of trastuzumab progression and offer it to the patients. Uh, and uh, it's a great option. Maybe my last uh, question for you, just practically speaking for all the people listening, do you guys do anything special for monitoring beyond looking at ILD on the standard, you know, response assessment scans, no special interim PFTs, et cetera? You know, sometimes we hear about this. Yeah, and this is a very good question, Sam, and comes up quite often when I speak to my colleagues. And the answer is no. You have to monitor them carefully. 
with scans. And when I say carefully, read the scan and look at the results yourself. Look at the images because often these small ground glass opacifications are not even, they don't make it into the impression. It's in the body of the read um, because the radiologist doesn't know what treatment the patient is on. And these GGOs, you know, may be completely insignificant in the you know, age of COVID where everybody has some sort of upper respiratory infection. So you have to do the, your own surveillance. In clinical trials such as Destiny Gastric 03, as you know, we're taking this regimen perhaps to first line. We do recommend pulmonary function tests, but honestly, it's not a very common occurrence for ILD. So to do PFTs in clinical practice for all, it's, it's a bit of an overkill. I think you just need to talk to your patients and monitor the scans carefully, because if you stop at grade one or even possibly intermediate between grade one and two ILD, most of these patients just do just fine. There are very few, if any, grade five events. There was one grade five event on or death on Destiny uh, Gastric 02. It's more common in breast cancer patients because they get a lot more therapy and also a lot, many more of them have probably chest radiation and other factors. But in gastric, you know, you should be fine with just routine scans and just, you know, looking at the scans carefully. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Well, look, this was a, an awesome rapid fire review. It's always uh, great to see you and hopefully next time we'll be in person. So. I uh, want to thank everyone for listening and want to thank uh, Dr. Janjigian for giving us her time and uh, look forward to talking again. This GI Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.